Good morning, everyone. Greet you in Jesus' name. It's good to be here this morning with God's people. In the Old Testament, we read about the children of Israel being led out of Egypt by Moses. A great crowd of uh, people. And eventually they arrive at Mount Sinai. Following uh, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night in Moses' direction. And you remember how God came down on Mount Sinai and all the commotion there of the the smoke and the fire and the lightning and the thunder and the trumpet and the people were afraid. And it was on that mount. Moses went up and down there several times. I didn't go back and count how many times he went up and down that mountain to meet with God. But while he was up there, God gave him the commandments, including the Ten Commandments. And that's one of the fascinating stories in the Old Testament uh, from my childhood, I remember. And in Exodus 24, we read this in verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments which I have written, that you may teach them, that you may teach these commandments to the people. And then in Exodus 31, verse 18, And when he, God, had made an end of speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. And then in Exodus 32, uh, beginning at verse 15, And Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides. On the one side and on the other were they written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. Amazing story. Two slabs of stone and writing on both sides of each. Uh, we don't know how big they are, were. Uh, we don't know uh, how heavy they were, whether Moses was struggling as he carried them down the mountain, but they were the words of the law, and they were written by God's own hand. And it was God's holy will for man, for his people. But there was a problem. The lives of God's people were nowhere close to portraying the message on those two tablets of stone. Now, the people had been living in Egypt for several hundred years, 400 years. And they learned a lot about Egypt. They had a lot to learn about God. And so they were getting, uh, they knew about God, 
But they had a lot to learn about God. They had just come through the Red Sea and a miraculous deliverance there. All they had seen those plagues happening back in Egypt, the deliverance from Christ. And here they were in Mount Sinai, and God was noisy and frightening, and they were nowhere close to being. Uh, they were God's people, but their heart weren't with God. We continue there in that in, in Exodus 32, verse 17, as they were going down the mountain. Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, and he said to Moses, There's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear, like pardoning. And so it was, as soon as Moses came near the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing. And so Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. The first of the Ten Commandments that was included on that tablet says this, You shall have no other God before you. You shall not make for yourself a carved image any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And here were God's people bowing to a golden calf. It's one thing to write the law of God on stone, to preserve it, to hold it in one's hand and read it, and to teach it and study it and review it, but it is quite another to get that law inside the mind and inside the heart in such a way that a person's life is changed and actually reflects the message that is on those stone tablets, and that he actually becomes part of them, uh, becomes the message himself. And you know the rest of the story, how that all unfolded there, and how the next time that the tablets were prepared, Moses did the writing, and the recall of the story. But God saw this problem, with his people, and God had a plan, and God made a promise. And if you want to turn in your Bible to a few uh, passages, Jeremiah 31 is 1, and verse 33, I've been reading from the New King James, Jeremiah 31, verse 33, God makes a covenant. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds 
and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Very different from what was happening in the Old Testament. After those days, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And in Ezekiel chapter 11 and verse 19, Then I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them, and take the stony heart out of their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh. A hard heart taken out and replaced with a soft heart of flesh. In Ezekiel 36, beginning at verse 24, For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do that. God made a promise, and God was faithful to His promise. In 2 Corinthians, the first chapter, we read about God's faithfulness to His promises, beginning at verse 18, but as God is faithful, our word to you was not yet to know, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Sylvanus, and Timothy was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. saying here at the beginning of this letter to the Corinthians that God keeps His promises. God did keep His promises. God did send His Word. God did send His Spirit. And that God did convert hearts. And He gives His Spirit to work in us. Now I'd like you to turn with me to um, the Second Corinthians 3. And want to notice the first three you know, verses there. As you read through this, if you read through the whole chapter, you see the prophecies and the promises of Jeremiah and Ezekiel were fulfilled in, in uh, the people at Corinth. And we'll see that they're fulfilled in our hearts too. But notice especially these first three verses of Second Corinthians 3. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you, or letters of commendation from you? You are, you are our epistles. 
written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, and that is, of the heart. Paul uh, saying that you are an epistle. You're a letter. You're a letter that can be read. This letter is in my heart. He affectionately thinks of them, and they and he sees them as the fruit of his ministry. So they're written in his heart. But they are an epistle known and read by men. Men can see them and see them, can see their lives. Christ's letter, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, and not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. What's in the heart lived out. It's seen by others. And it's an official read by others. In Romans 1, there are numbers of scriptures like this, uh, Romans 1, verse 81, where Paul is thanking God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. The, uh, the lives of the Roman Christians was read by other people as they saw them and watched their, them living. And in 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 8 through 10, for from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So the Thessalonians, another group of Christians who uh, heard the word of God and committed themselves to God, and God changed their hearts, and God wrote on their hearts God's Spirit, and their lives changed, and people saw it for, for Far around, they had turned from idols to the living and true God. And God intends that His people are a letter to other people, are a letter, are a message. And there's a caution. The Scripture gives caution. A bad letter has a bad reflection on God and our Savior. In Second Samuel, this is after, uh, in chapter 12, after uh, David's sin with Bathsheba, and maybe this was a year later, I think, that Nathan came to David and confronted him about this sin. I'm not positive about the year, but it was a while. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. But listen to what Nathan said to David. 
The Lord also has put away your sin, and you shall not die. However, however, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. A consequence. Because you have given great occasion to the enemies of God to blaspheme. Someone who calls himself a Christian, who calls himself one of God's children, and sins is not writing a good letter. And it doesn't make good reading, it doesn't. It doesn't honor and glorify God. Romans 2, verses 23 and 24. You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. People who call themselves, as the Jews in this case, calling themselves God's people, but breaking God's law. And the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. 1 Timothy 6, verse 1. Let as many bond servants as are under the yoke, if you're a slave uh, and, and still in slavery, count your own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. If you call yourself a Christian, uh, have a right attitude towards your boss. so that the name of God and His doctrine may not be blasphemed. And in instructions to young women, in Titus 2, verses 4 and 5, admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their husbands, that the Word of God may not be blasphemed. The world sinners look at Christians, and those sinners don't honor God, don't worship God, don't follow God. They have some idea what God's people ought to be like. And when they see somebody who calls himself a Christian, and obviously isn't living like Christ, that's not just a disappointment. Uh, they may even laugh and cheer. And they may even hear they won't be attracted to God. They'll think less of God, of God's people. If that's what being a Christian is, I don't want any part of it. God wants our lives to be letters that teach the truth, that reflect the image of God and God's ways. That convicts the rebellious and attracts the seekers. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 5, verses 15 and 16, 
nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's what's supposed to happen, that they glorify your Father in heaven. Maybe not in the sense of worshiping from their heart, but that they acknowledge that's a good life. That's the way God would want His people to live. First Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. Behold, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. In other words, your epistle is clear before the Gentiles that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God the day of visitation. And in the third chapter, the first terrible verses of First Peter 3, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their lives. As they read the epistle of their wife, when they observe your faith, conduct, accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. A, a heart uh, that God's heart, that God's spirit has touched and written on, and a life that is living it out can be a testimony, is a testimony, that can even win the law. Another passage in Titus 2, beginning at verse 6. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Examples of clear epistles that give the message of Christ. So how are our letters, how are these letters written? We know, we know how they're written. They're written, to start with, through conversion. The heart transplant, the new heart. When that stony heart is taken out and replaced, that heart and resistance, and a new heart of flesh is put in, like Ezekiel talked about, I'll give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you, I'll take the heart of stone out and give you a heart of flesh. 
in 2 Corinthians 3, we looked at the first several verses, but later on, beginning in verse 13, he talks about Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, talking about the glory of the Old Testament. And, but, with, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. When one turns to the Lord, when one surrenders to the Lord, the veil is taken away, and he sees, and he understands, and something begins to happen. In his heart, God's Spirit begins to write there. And that continues through continual exposure to God, to God's Spirit and His Word on the converted heart. And the next verse there, uh, verse 18, But we all, with unveiled faith, with the, that that separates us from God, the flesh and sin, taken away, but we all, with unveiled faith, beholding us in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Like Romans 12, he talks about being transformed by the renewing of your mind, incrementally, step by step, as we, as we read and listen. Uh, we said this morning about listening, that we need to listen not just hear sounds, but listen to God. And the Spirit works. And there is change. And through continual following, through obedience, we say uh, in the baptismal vow, we promise to follow the Lord. And as long as you are faithful in abiding His Word, you are His disciple. We say in that ritual. And it's possible for hearts to cool, to start to harden. Things that were pliable begin to get And they can return to stone. So we need to continually commune with the Lord, walk with the Lord, work with the Lord, with our lives. What should our letters say? What should our letters what should people read? There'd be a long list. There's several things that I think our, our lives should say to people. One is, I love God more than anything else. I love God more than anything else. God is real uh, to me. I don't love the world. I don't love the things of earth. God is real. I I love them. And it shows up in our interests and in our prior priorities as people uh, watch us 
and so you see that there's time for God. They may not see how much personal time we take, but they see that church is important, and in other ways, they see that God and what God says is important, and they, they see that. I believe we met saw several people at the restaurant uh, the other night, Wednesday night, who uh, loved God. And there was an old man in the hall uh, in one of the last places where we stopped. He was just in front of me a little bit, and his head was kind of bowed, bowed over. He was obviously very old. But he was singing, and he was following along the words. And just about every song he seemed familiar with it. And he said amen a couple of times. And I spoke with him a little bit afterwards. And I said, I believe you love God. Yes, I love God. And he said that um, he has his devotions every morning. He reads his Bible and he prays. And God just meant a lot to him. People see that. I love God more than anything. That's one message. Another one is that God meets my deepest needs, that God satisfies my deepest needs. I'm saved and delivered. I'm loved by God. I'm secure in God. I'm confident there's a bright future regardless of what happens. I'm thankful and grateful. I'm smiling. I'm not thrashing and stewing and complaining and worried. Well, honestly, sometimes I do. Honestly, sometimes I have. God needs to write a little more on our hearts, my heart. But I believe that's something that God wants us to know and be experiencing, and people can see that. Another thing that our life can tell others is that God is holy, and God wants me to be holy too. I follow Christ. I want to know what God says, and I want to obey what I know God wants. And so, we are people of integrity because that's what God wants us to be, that we're honest in our business dealings, and we keep our promises, and we're moral people because God says, be holy. In the way men relate to women, and in the way women relate to men, and in the way we respond when we hear off-color jokes, or the way we don't respond, and the respect we have for authority, that we don't join in the sarcastic name-calling of politicians. And we obey the law, and we pay our taxes, and they see us forgiving other people instead of seeking revenge when we're mistreated and slandered. And they see that there is a peace like a river, like we talked about this morning, a river of peace. Uh, in stormy times, like uh, Gabriel pointed out, tribulation that comes. And they see generous people. These things are, are noted. And another message that I believe is important that God would have us show is that 
God loves you. God can speak to us, through us, to others. God loves you. I care about you too. We show interest. We're sympathetic to the troubles of other people. And we help them where we can to serve them. Whether it's a cup of cold water or going with can for a week in disaster service somewhere. But it's a, it's a, it's a genuine life. It's a real, genuine life that is lived out of a real relationship with the real one true God. It's not faith. It's not vain philosophy. You know, we, we uh, were shocked and you know, read about, heard about that school shooting still another school shooting in Florida. Seventeen people died that morning of tragedy, of a terrible thing. But uh, there's a greater tragedy than that scene. I read part of uh, a New York Times article about the uh, news article about that shooting. And they said that every morning at Stoneman Douglas High begins with an affirmation over the intercom. On Wednesday morning, that was the day of the shooting, the affirmation began with the word life. Life supports me in every way possible were the first words that students heard that day over the intercom. And then it went on to speak about Valentine's Day and how everybody deserves a space and healthy relationships and so on. But I was curious about that statement. Life supports me in every way possible. And I found that it's a quote of Louis Hay, whom I never heard of before. But she founded a Hay house. And I learned that she died last August at age 90. I saw on her website, our beloved friend and Hay House founder, Louise Hay, transitioned peacefully in her sleep on August 30, 2017, at age 90. Louise was an incredible visionary and advocate, and everyone who had the privilege to meet her, either in person or through her words, felt her passion for serving others. And sort of uh, her, her life, uh, it was given as though this is kind of her life um, motto or, or theme or something. She had written this. I have come to this planet to learn to love myself more and to share that love with all those around me. That was her purpose in life. To learn to love herself more and to share that love. Of course, we know that all works out, but that was what she saw. And people, apparently, there's quite a following. And I looked at some of her other things. I'll just, I'll just share a few of them. Life loves you. 
all is well in my world, everything is working out for my highest good. Out of this situation, only good will come. I am safe. I am comfortable looking in the mirror saying, I love you. I really love you. I forgive myself and set myself free. I'm divinely guided and protected at all times. I'm not sure what that divinity is. But I noticed a couple things. Uh, one is she was addressing real needs. She had real needs in her life. All, all mankind needs forgiveness. Mankind needs to know love and security. And she was speaking to those kinds of things. So there were real needs. But empty faith, vain words, a life empty of God and the treasure of knowing God. Genuine Christians are an epistle, a letter of truth that points to one who can save, genuinely save, and bring genuine change. They see in people, they see in us, I love God. God is real to me. God satisfies my deepest needs. God is holy. I want to be holy. I want to follow Him. They sense, they see, God loves you, and I care about you too. So it's good for us to think about ourselves being epistles and asking, what does our letter say? What does my letter say? Who is writing? Is it the Holy Spirit? Or is it me? seem to be writing her own epistle. What is being written? Sometimes our letters need a little editing. Um, Galen pointed out that my email was to a church member, which is entirely clear. Sometimes our letters need to be re- revised. But an epistle um, is a message. And we're, we're thankful for the epistles that we have in the scripture. The epistles in the New Testament. They made a great difference in the early church, and they, they are God's word clearly written down to us. But, you know, the uh, epistles written in the heart of the disciples, Christ's followers, whether Thessalonica or, or Rome or Corinth or Gladys, make a difference in other people's lives too. They certainly did. They made a difference then, they make a difference now, and ours do also, or they can. We read each other's letters. We'll do some reading this morning of letters that are right here. And I've been blessed often by what I've read in this group. 
offer. We find that in fellowship in the church. And we can encourage each other by the epistles that we are becoming. And what a, an important addition to our home library is to have a clear Christian epistle lived in mom and dad and Christian brother and sister in our homes. That's an important part of our home library. We don't think about that among our books so much, but it's a very important part of uh, our home influence. Very important. And it's important for our friends and acquaintances. And there are people that we meet in passing that we'll never see again that we may make an impression on. You are an epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but the Spirit, the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. May God be